Good morning, everybody. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you can go on to your class. For the rest of us, we're going to be in the fourth week of a series entitled Modern Family. If you missed any of the messages, we had them online on our podcast at livingstones.cc. And we've been talking about the first week, we just began with the reality that we're all sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And when you put a collection of sinners together in a thing that we call family, it's going to have issues. It's going to have complexities and dynamics involved and dysfunctions. But we think in the midst of that, when everyone feels like they're complete failures, that God brings hope. And the way he does this is through his son Jesus. He provides a path of one, grace and forgiveness, because it makes family reunions a lot better than that. And second, by decentering the biological family, which is very good news to people coming out of just really dysfunctional family situations. Number three, he inspires us to an ideal. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. He inspires us to an ideal. And then number four, he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us in really the very practical day-to-day decisions about what to say, what not to say, when to say it, how to say it, how to treat. I mean, those are very real things on a daily basis in regards to family. And we depend on the Holy Spirit to guide us and teach us those things in the midst of it. The second week, we talk about marriages specific, and, and, and really it was more of a message even to the men in terms of you need to pursue and romance your wife still. That that's how we continue to have covenant together and passion in our marriages and in our life, and so that men ought to continue to pursue their wives. Last week, we talked about kid CEO and what it looks like when we let children be the center of our family and the thing that drives our family. And in that, we discussed that really no one likes to be around an adult who is trained as a child to believe that the whole world revolves around them. Nobody likes that person. They make, good, they make terrible spouses, terrible friends, terrible employees. And so in that, here's the things we suggested. Number one, keep the end in mind. That whatever you want for your kid at age 22, like this is the kind of heart and character and person, begin that discipline at age three. The second thing we talked about was get your kids used to the word no. And to say out loud, you've got permission to say no to your kids. That you don't, you're not, doesn't make you a bad parent. doesn't mean that you don't love your kids. And hopefully this week you had plenty of opportunity to say no to your kid. And you can even blame Pastor Sam. I'm okay with that. That's all right. And then uh, we also said number three, then let the consequences do the talking. If there are real reality-based consequences in life, and don't rescue your kids from that. They need to feel the full weight of that. That's how they learn. That's how they grow. That's how they mature. And finally, number four, we said don't put your kids above your own marriage. Don't put the kids above your marriage. Now, next week, we're going to have a guest speaker come and talk to us. His name is Matt Shantz, and he's from Grand Rapids. He's going to be a great communicator, great speaker, and have a lot to say in regards to the road less traveled, but increasingly more populated. It's about the single life. So if you're single, bring all of your single friends. Tell them you need to get to Livingstone's Church at 9 o'clock, 10, 30, 11, 55, as we talk about how do we do that faithfully as a disciple of Jesus. And then the last week, we'll wrap up this series with how to prepare a cracked foundation. But this morning... I'm about to step into some deep stuff while trying to avoid stepping into deep stuff, if you know what I mean by that. And I said because this morning the topic is full of potential landmines and sensitivities because I want to talk about living the 50% life after divorce. I know just as we kind of start to go in that direction already, you know, you can start to maybe feeling your own heart and spirit kind of a little anxious, a little nervousness in regards to just this topic. And so I would say this, if you've never been divorced, well, Praise God, I think that's great, but I do think you should listen because there's a chance that someday, God forbid, that could be your situation in life and you'll want to have tools to how to walk out of that or my hope is out of these two options or the second option, you'll have people that you love in your life that you'll need to help in terms of just kind of coming out of that life situation. But my experience is for those of you who do have divorce in your background, and I'm telling you a lot of people here at the Living Stones Church do. 
So if you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, I bet I'm the only one and he's talking right at me. No, that's not true. There's lots of people all around you who have divorce as a part of their story and their background. But here's what I know. Everybody's in a different place in it. So for some of you, I'm going to talk about divorce, but you're thinking to yourself, really, I'm in a good place. I've moved on. In fact, my life, I feel like I've been healed. I've started a new family. I'm in, I'm in a really good place. And I think that's fantastic. For others of you, you're like, no, I'm on a good path and I'm moving in a good direction. I mean, yeah, there's still moments of sadness or guilt or depression or anger or even bitterness, usually triggered by having to deal with my ex over the kids. But in the main, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on a good path, but there's still some sensitive spots, some kind of tender spots in there. And then for others of you, no, you're right in the middle of it. Like you are, you are coming right out of, in this life experience, divorce and the huge gamut of things that are going on with it. And so for you... This topic is just, I mean, it's like an open wound, and it's very exposed, and you're still struggling through the grief of divorce, and the pain is raw, and at times unpredictable. And because of that, everything feels very, very tense at times, and you're struggling your way through that. I want you to know this. I'm not interested in sending anybody to a bad place this morning. I'm just not. I'm not interested in hurting anybody's, you know, raw, sensitive spots in regards to the pain of divorce. In fact, my prayer has been that this message might be at least a significant signpost of healing and grace and peace in your hearts and mind. But I understand churches have not typically been safe places for people who've walked through divorce. They just haven't, which is a tragedy, I think. But, you know, church oftentimes is that place where either by tone or teaching or attitude it becomes guilt-ridden or very difficult and they don't feel safe at all. In fact, many people who've walked through divorce find within church that you kind of feel like a second-class citizen of the kingdom of God. And I just want you to know this, that really your divorce and your story doesn't change one bit that God is crazy in love with you. Not, not one bit. There's nothing that changed about his, his love and his affections towards you because of it. Nor do I think it means that you have to clip out of what Jesus says in John chapter 10 about being that good shepherd that wants to lead us to an abundant life. Like, I don't think that that ship has sailed for you because of that situation, that you can't ever have abundant life again. And so we want to figure out how do we walk forward claiming God's crazy and love nature towards us and find, in my, in my opinion, the church ought to be the safest place for people who are in the midst of that in pain and struggling. That if you can't find strength and comfort and truth and love from your brothers and sisters and I, in Christ, then I don't know where you're going to find it. And so as we journey forward in truth and grace, I, I just want to say that it just turns my heart up front here. But let's get started with this. Just an obvious that if you've walked through it, you know it, that, that divorce, the, the negative reality is divorce is devastating. I mean, it just is. It's like this deep, gaping wound inflicted, inflicted on our whole being, emotional, physical, spiritual, psychological. I've heard people say coming out of the other end of it that it would have been easier had their spouse just died. Like dealing with the death of a spouse would have been far easier to deal with than the divorce. Because, and I'm not trying to downplay the death of a spouse. I mean, it is traumatic. It is sad. It is overwhelming. I mean, all the stages of grief that you got. Now, don't hear me say that at all. I'm just saying divorce not only has those stages of grief, but in addition to that has some real life killers like bitterness and anger and betrayal and guilt and shame that compound things and make it even more difficult. And so this is why I think God says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I hate divorce. And I don't read that to you to kind of put a guilt trip on you. Here's, here's the reason why I think God hates divorce. It's for the exact same reason why any good father hates to see their child walk through divorce. 
because it's so devastating. And I don't know if some of you have adult children who've had to walk through divorce. If you have, you know the feeling of that. You know the pain of that. You know the devastation of having to watch your child in pain and sadness and depression and hurting. And that effect, how does that not affect your heart? And in the same way, I think God the Father, when he just sees the devastation that takes place in the midst of divorce, it so pains his heart, it so hurts his heart that he could say, I, I hate divorce that I, I hate to see my children suffer in such pain because it is. It's devastating to husbands and to wives. And I don't care if you're the one filing or the one who's being served the papers. It's devastating to children and to the parents and family members of those who are walking through it. It's devastating to friendships, you know, those circles of friends that you have together as a couple. And now what do we do with all of that? And there's just it feels estranged. Even churches are not spared the sadness of divorce. It happens here often where we're waiting to see who... Who gets custody of the Livingstone's church, so to speak, that the one continues to stay and the other one doesn't? We get that really in this, there is shattered emotional, physical, and spiritual states that come with divorce. It has compounding effects and problems. For example, if you're divorced, you are twice as likely to struggle with alcoholism than the general population. If you have two or more divorces in your background, you're three times more likely to struggle the suicide rates is three times higher for those who are coming out of a divorce situation. The depression rates are four times higher than the general population in regards to dealing with divorce. It's an ongoing struggle of reconciling what is, I mean, the current reality of life and what it was supposed to be, like everything you imagined, everything you dreamt of, like even at your, and your, on your wedding day when you're standing there and you're both making promises, in your mind, it's happily ever after. Like it really is until death. Do, I mean, I really do believe they mean it is until death do us part. And now you're trying to figure out emotionally the reality that now I loathe the ground that my ex-spouse walks on. And this wasn't the script that I was supposed to play out in regards to life. That the dissolution of marriage is a death in itself. And because of that, it goes through the stages of grief. And if one doesn't go through those stages, it is bad long-term and devastating. So the question is, how do we then move forward and find a place of healing? How do we not let the reality of a divorce sabotage an abundant life for our future? And how do we reconcile all this with Jesus' high ideal? Remember, we talked about that the very first week, number, number three, Jesus has for us a high ideal. So here's where I need to start. The Bible does talk about divorce. And because of that, I wouldn't be a faithful pastor if I didn't take you there to talk about what the Bible says about divorce. And as I do, I do because Jesus inspires for us an ideal that we have to hang on to. Like, we don't want to yield that. We don't want to give that up. And listen, even people who've walked through a divorce will say, divorce stinks. Like, they don't want it for their children. And they don't want it for the people in their life that they love and, and, and the people in their, in their family. And so we, I mean, it's, no, we're not going to yield this. We want to hang on to this high ideal and this whole high standard that Jesus gives to us. And we'll just work, start from there and work from there. But let me start by sharing God's original heart and intent in terms of marriage. And anytime you want to know God's original heart for something, his intent for something, I'd say go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because this is the place where you see the perfect will, the perfect intent, the perfect desire of God being played out in the story of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in that story, what we see is God's heart and intent, even in regards to marriage. So I don't know if you remember, like God finishes creating Adam, the man, and he's all alone. And even God recognizes, I don't think it's a good thing for him to be all alone. And so he creates for him a helpmate. He kind of out of his own rib, he creates, and he presents to the man, the woman. And then Barry White starts singing in the background... And it, and it was all good, right? And then it says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, 
that that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now that whole language of one flesh is more than just even a physical thing. I mean, it's talking about it is the bond and of, it is covenant. What we're dealing here is, is covenant, and it's a big deal. And that's why it uses such strong language of being one flesh. And then you get to verse 25, which is my life verse. I like to print this out and put this on my refrigerator and let my wife... And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just teasing. Now, here's what I think this really... I don't think this really means... Like, it's not about, hey, we're running around our birthday suits. I think it's really about... It's talking about, and, and theologically, about the fact that in marriage, they're free, and they're vulnerable with one another, and they're open, and they're honest. This is the real meaning of naked and without shame. And so if we end our story here, everything's great. Like, if we could just kind of close it at chapter 2 and go, this is life as we know it, then everything is perfect. But here's what happens next. You go to Genesis chapter 3. And I don't know if you remember what's in Genesis chapter 3, but that's where you get to the fall. And this is where sin enters the picture. Where God's original intent, what he desired, what his will was, what he wanted, all of a sudden gets disrupted because of sin. And for all of us, we're living in the post-Genesis chapter 3. Like you can say, oh, I hear you preacher. Ooh, you know, that Jesus ideal, Genesis 1 and 2, I hear that, that's great. But what we find ourselves typically is post-Genesis 3, dealing with the fact that we've all fallen and we all sin, and that affects marriages. That sin erodes and even injures covenant. And the result is what God originally intended gets disrupted. Now, it won't have the last word, and we're going to come to that, but even when it comes to this, to the disruption of God's original intent, as you keep reading through the Scriptures, it gets legalized and codified even in the law. And so when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses gives instructions, kind of how we're going to manage and walk through the dissolution of marriage. And he'll say this in verse, verse 1, If a man marries a woman and becomes, who becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her, and he, which, which we'll talk about this, what is it? And, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. See, it's, what you need to know in terms of Jesus' teachings in the background, it is this passage of Scripture that was hotly debated in the days of Jesus. A huge debate broke out in the time of Jesus about what does this mean? But between two opposing Jewish groups, what is this idea of if she becomes displeasing, like she's got gas a lot? I mean, what does this mean, like when she's displeasing or there's something indecent about her? What does it mean? And so you had two big schools of thoughts. Does it, does it mean something like, is it, like, does that have to be really serious, like she keeps putting arsenic in my soup? Is that like what? Or is it more trivial, like, you know, she, she burns supper all, I bet it's every other night she's burnt supper once again. And so that becomes the argument. In fact, there are two major schools of thought. One is from the Rabbi Shammai, and his was more restrictive. No, it's only for marital infidelity, marital unfaithfulness. That's the only reason why you could give your wife a certificate of divorce. That's one extreme. To the other extreme, you had Rabbi Hillel, and in his teachings, he said, actually, no, if the man wants to, he could give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away for a myriad of different reasons, including she burned dinner one too many times. And it's in this context that we have all of Jesus' teachings on divorce. That the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they come to him to test him, to get him to weigh in on this, on his, this position, and in it perhaps to either trap him or at least to alienate him from the opposing view. And what's interesting is usually in this situation, Jesus just gets right out of it. Like he doesn't take a side. He just kind of somehow, like remember when they wanted to trick him about paying taxes to Caesar? Remember that argument broke out? Well, Jesus just sidestepped that whole thing and said, just give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. And they're like, oh, we don't have a comeback for that. I mean, 
But on this particular case, Jesus does take a side. And he does weigh in with his opinion. And in this, he sides with Rabbi Shammai, and I think he does so for two reasons. Now, Rabbi Shammai, was, he had the more restrictive uh, interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, only in cases of marital unfaithfulness. And I think Jesus takes this side for two reasons. One is to protect women. And I'll talk about this more in just a moment, but one is he's trying to protect women who are very vulnerable in this context of divorce taking place and just sending her out of the house with a certificate. But the second thing, the reason why, is Jesus is trying to point back to and uphold God's original intent. That the ideal is this, and he's inspiring us to it. Now, here's what I need you to remember. In Jesus' day, if you were a Jewish woman, you had no right to divorce. Like, it wasn't like you found a Jewish attorney, and then you went and kind of filed papers. If you were a Jewish woman, you were stuck in the situation that you were in. There was no sense of, well, I don't really like this man, or I want out of it. I mean, and then you kind of get out of it through divorce. But if you were the Jewish man, you held all the cards. I mean, even according to, here's the argument, Deuteronomy 24 gives him permission and license to just write her a certificate of divorce, and he could send her right out. And what Jesus recognizes is the vulnerability of the woman who has no rights and no say in it. That Jesus recognizes the devastating consequences to the woman just to be sent out of the house with this certificate. It was devastating to her socially and especially economically, not to mention emotionally and physically. And so what Jesus weighs in in Matthew chapter 5, what he's doing here, he's trying to say, this is some serious stuff. The way that you guys are treating your wives and these women to just to, to, to dismiss them from your house with a certificate as if there's no consequences, as if this is going to affect for her for the rest of her life, is just wrong. He's trying to say, this isn't like switching cell phone carriers where I used to be with AT&T, but now I really like Verizon. Or I used to drink Diet Coke, but now I really like Coke Zero, which, by the way, is really better. But, I mean, you, that's not the point. You get what I'm saying here. Jesus is weighing in to say, no, we can't treat. And that's why he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, says, it's, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And some of your, uh, that's even kind of a softer language, some of your translations say, makes her an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so the question becomes, how, why would we penalize or make punitive for the woman who doesn't even have a say in this matter? How does she out? And I think that's Jesus' point. He's, trying to, he's upping the ante. He's trying to get these men to see, don't you see what's happening to this woman in her life for the rest of her life because of this action? And he's trying to get them to see. It's sort of like he's just trying to knock them upside the head to get, no, this is not how we're going to treat wives. And so and it, he isn't trying to be punitive towards the woman. This is an issue for Jesus of justice. And of human dignity. But then later the same topic comes up in chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 3. It says, some Pharisees came to him to test him. Now I think this is very important, right? Why, why did they come to Jesus? To test him. Now, this isn't like two good friends that want to go have coffee and let's just share hearts together. You've got a group of people who've been typically antagonistic towards Jesus, his entire ministry, and here they show up once again to try to trick him or to try to test him. And it's over this hot debate that's going on. And so this is the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? See, that's the Deuteronomy 24 question. Like, can he, for any reason, if he wants to. And this is what Jesus says. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And when they hear this, they immediately just take him back, well, go back to Deuteronomy 24. Then why then they asked did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus says this, 
Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. You see what Jesus is doing? He's taking them right back to Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, I get what happened in Genesis 3, but what I'm trying to do is elevate and inspire in this ideal what God intended from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. That Moses, because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples, and, and even the disciples felt the weight of this. Like, are you serious? Like, that's so heavy and so restrictive. Even they noticed, and they said this in verse 10, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Right? I mean, they felt it. See, Jesus points back to the ideal. He holds up a high view of marriage, and he sides with the restrictive interpretations of Moses for the sake of the woman. So he's probably not a big fan of the no-fault divorce thing. But here's what else Jesus does here in chapter 19. He acknowledges that covenants can be devastated to the point of disillusion. What he acknowledges here is that covenants, even marriage covenants, can be so negatively impacted by sin that they functionally really are over. They're done with. And he gives us the one illustration is what? Like, what's the one thing that he mentions that, oh, yeah, that is so injurious to covenants that it could ultimately just ruin it. And for him, it's sexual immorality. It's marital unfaithfulness. It's adultery. For Jesus is a covenant killer. That an affair is so grievous, so devastating, that it undermines and can damage the covenant beyond repair. Now, let me also, I feel like I need to say this as a side note. Listen, I know even though a lot of couples who, that wasn't the last word. And that somehow they were able to, to communicate and talk through in grace and forgiveness and the kingdom, I mean, and put back together again their marriage. And it was better after than it was even before. And so I want to say that out loud, that I don't think affair means, oh, that's it, you've got to be, I mean, it doesn't have to. But even Jesus acknowledges and recognizes, oh, that's a doozy. Like when it comes to covenants, that behavior really so undermines and so injures covenants that it makes them susceptible then to being over. But the big question for us this morning is, is an affair the only covenant killer? Like, is the only behavior that damages marriage beyond repair, adultery? Was Jesus trying to even give us an exhaustive list? Like, was this his way of saying, no, really, this is the only reason, that's it, and everything else is off? And so, in this one, and, and I don't think, here's my, I don't think Jesus was trying to give us an exhaustive list. Like, I don't think he was trying to give us a legal code in regard, regards to divorce, which unfortunately I think most churches have done. Remember the context again. The Pharisees came to him to test him, verse 3, to trick him, to put him on the spot. And who knows what Jesus would say in your particular situation if you just went and had coffee together and just shared, here's the circumstances of my life, and I don't know what to do. Like, I want to follow you, and I want to obey you, and I want to trust you, and I, I don't, I don't, what am I supposed to do here? Here's why I think, though, another reason why I think Jesus' teaching was not exhaustive. It's because Paul, when he's dealing with his culture and his time and his place in Corinth, he gives a few more exceptions. Like when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he, he gives even two more. Like, I don't know if you remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's a situation where Christian women want to be finished with their, with their marriages, like they want to be done with it. And the apostle Paul will say, okay, fine, that's fine. You want out, you can get out. But you have to remain unmarried or be reconciled back to your husband. Now, that's, Jesus didn't give us that, right? That, that came from Paul, where he's trying to figure out what's going on in his context in the Corinthian church, and he gives another exception. And then he'll follow that up with even another one. When, when a Christian is married to a non-Christian, and if the non-Christian wants to get out of the marriage, what does he say to the Christian? Let him go. You're not bound in that situation. I mean, so Paul is adding on. So that's why I don't think even Paul understood Jesus' teaching to be fully exhaustive. And are there other covenant killers? My answer would be, yeah, I believe that there are. If, if, if he's beating the kids... 
or he's beating you, that's a, that's a covenant killer. And you ought to think about getting out. Or if now somehow she got tripped up into a meth addiction and is driving you into financial ruin, is that a marriage covenant killer? Yeah. That'll so injure and damage marriages and covenant that it sometimes beyond repair. Or, or, or maybe you discover that your husband, you thought he was just working, but really he was just scamming and defrauding elderly people and got caught, and now he's going to prison with felonies. Is that, is that a covenant killer? Oh, yeah, that's a covenant killer. Or, or maybe she's declared that sex really isn't her thing and she's not having it anymore, and especially with you, for the rest of your life. Would that be a covenant killer? Oh, yeah, that definitely injures and damages covenant and so we could come up with a list of behaviors that are covenant killers and sins that might be devastating, sometimes often beyond repair, to the covenant of marriage. But I, got, I want to confess this out loud because it's important. That I, I feel like I'm, I'm, walking a very, I'm walking a tightrope on the one hand, not wanting to give anyone the slightest excuses to check out of their marriage because of irreconcilable differences. But at the same time, I want to deal with the reality that real covenant killers exist because of sin. And on the one hand, I want, like Jesus, to take covenant seriously, to say we protect it, we go after it, we nurture it, we strengthen it. And on the other hand, recognize it's to, we don't want to let divorce be a casual or flippant option. Well, we're going through a hard season, so I'm out. I, I, we don't want to go there. We don't want to allow the disillusion of marriage to be our default or our easy answer out of every life difficulty that we have. Because if you're married, you're going to have difficulty. And at the 9 o'clock service, Sarah Ingram was here. And uh, Sarah's husband passed away a couple years ago. And so I was talking to Sarah, and they had been married, her and her husband, Art, for 62 years. Like, I can't even imagine that. I can't 62 years. <laughs> so I asked her, I remember asking Sarah, I said, how, it, how did you and Art stay married for 62 years? I'll never forget what she said. This was her answer. She said, we didn't have any other choice. <laughs> and I thought, not as romantic as I thought it was going to be, but there's something in it that seems profound to me that... But, I mean, what she was communicating was our parents weren't taking us back. We didn't have friends. We'd go stay. I mean, when they had issues, they had to work through their issues because it felt to them like they had no other choice. And there's something in that I think, there's something kind of healthy about that where we don't allow ourselves an easy out every time things get difficult, that every time things get, but here's what I want to say in, the, in this moment. I, I still want, I want to still hold up Jesus' high view of marriage. And I've said even this, if you blew your first marriage, hang on to that ideal in your second. Or if you blew your, second, your first and second marriage, hang on to that ideal in your third. And at the same time, I want to acknowledge the reality of the fall and the fact that whether we like it or not, marriages do end. And covenants are dissolved. And divorce is a reality for us. And in that gap of Jesus' ideal and the reality where we find ourselves, I want us to discover that Jesus is making all things new. I want us to discover in the gap of His ideal and where we really live that His grace and His mercy and His love and His hope for abundant life is still a possibility and a reality for us. That your divorce does not have to be the most defining thing in your life or even the last word. That your divorce in your past does not have to be the defining thing in your life or even the last word. That you don't have to live with a scarlet D on your chest to announce to everybody that God's grace wants to remove from you shame and embarrassment and all the things that might come from divorce like bitterness and depression and anger and loneliness and despair. So if you're living in the reality of divorce, I recognize, I mean, really in one message we're going to cover this whole big emotional, I mean, I get that. And just, but let me offer, if you're in the midst of this, some pastoral thoughts that might be helpful to you coming out of divorce. Number one, 
place God at your center. Place God as your center. See, our lives, we talked about this some last week, but our lives do naturally revolve in orbit around certain things. And if I asked you just to get out a sheet of paper and take a pen and just write down, what are the things that your life revolves around? You'd probably come up with a pretty good list of, my life seems to revolve around this. And then in the end, i just ask you, on that list, which ones are permanent? Like, they will never go away. It is a permanent reality in regards to your existence. And the truth of the matter is, there won't be much on that list that is permanent. I mean, if, even if you write down spouse, really, they can leave or they could die. Or finances, they could be gone suddenly. Or your health can deteriorate. And uh, think about using this analogy of the earth uh, as it orbits the sun. The sun has a gravitational pull that keeps the earth in orbit. There's a gravitational pull. Now imagine in that pull, what if the sun just disappeared? Like just out of nowhere, just blew up and disappeared. What would happen? Well, the earth would lose that gravitational pull of the sun, and it would be sent off into a trajectory that would feel like chaos and all the things that come with that. Much in the same way, that's what happens in divorce. Like your life is revolving around your marriage. And that's not a criticism. I mean, that's, just, that's really what it is. And all of a sudden, when that marriage ends, when it blows up, when it goes away, all of a sudden, the gravitational pull of your marriage is gone, and it feels like your life has been sent off into a trajectory that you never asked for. And it feels like things are going uh, kind of chaos. And, 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 here's, I mean, and in the midst of that, we'll need to place God at the center to allow your life to begin a new orbit, a new trajectory that's around Him, to let His life and His light and His truth be that gravitational pull that replaces chaos with order and a lack of control with peace and insecurity with confidence. And here's really the reason why that's the best thing, because out of that list of things that our lives might revolve around, the only thing that is permanent, the only thing that is constant is God. Like, he alone is the only thing that says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will never leave you alone in any of the things that you're going through, not only in this life, but the life to come. I'm telling you, the only permanent thing in your life is God. And in the midst of divorce, placing him at the center will be absolutely essential to once again finding, okay, I'm not out of control. God is at the center. And I know when it feels like we're out of control, oftentimes, it's that, it's that uh, disruption of homeostasis. Homeostasis is a big fancy word. This is the state of stability, the state of being constant. We all long for that. And when that's gone, we reach for something to help us in that. And oftentimes what I've discovered is people are coming fresh out of divorce quickly latch on to a brand new relationship. I mean, and it's, it's the attempt of somehow finding some sort of stability. And so oftentimes you go for that prematurely and it gets... You could clutch on something, and when you throw the feelings of maybe feeling insecure or the desire after your divorce to prove that you're still desirable or still wanted or still sexy or you still got it, which let me just say as your pastor, you are very sexy. Like you are the sexiest living. You just Facebook that. I think my pastor just said I was sexy. I mean, you're, you're all right in that. It's too easy to jump into another relationship that you should never jump into. Now, somebody give me an amen on this. Okay, thank you. All right, I'm speaking. So how do you do that? So how do we put, how do we put God at the center? You, you ask him. You say, God, I'm so confused right now, and I'm so hurt, I'm so angry. I, whatever it is that you're feeling, in the midst of, I, I need you to be at my center. Because I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to be like in an hour from now. And, and it will mean complete surrender to him and complete dependence, which, by the way, will feel counterintuitive because in the midst of divorce, what you're trying to do is make yourself independent. Like, I don't need him, I don't need her, I'm all right. But it's counterintuitive, but with God, you need to move into complete dependence, complete faith, complete trust. And you might have to have with God a lot of honest conversations that could include some yelling. 
that says, I don't know where you were when this happened, and why did you let this happen, and this isn't what I signed up for, and this isn't the life I thought I was moving. I mean, and listen to me. God can handle all of those conversations. He's not afraid of that. He's not taken back by that. You could be completely honest and candid with God in the midst of those conversations. If you need to have a yelling match, have a yelling match. Number two, find your stability. Find your stability. Now, this is different than your center. God is your center, but he often uses other people or things to bring stability in the midst of your grief and pain and chaos. And so I would just ask you, who in your life can bring emotional stability to your intense pain? And you probably have these people. There's probably a friend in your life that you know, know they love me, they want what's best for me, they'll be honest with me when I need it, and I know I could call them at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they'll answer and they'll talk to me as long as I need them to, to talk through this issue or this feeling or this emotion. Those are people that God blesses us with in life as our friends to bring emotional stability. Those are people who bring stability, and those are good things. Now, you have other friends, and they're stupid, and they give you stupid advice. Don't listen to them. Just the good ones that bring stability. Or who in your family does this for you? And it won't be every member of your family because some feel your pain as much as you do and they just can't give you good advice. They're like, let's kill them tonight. I mean, that's what, the, right? I mean, don't, don't listen to them. Or maybe it's even professional help in terms of what, what's a good counsel that might, you might be able to talk this thing through. And I'd also say in terms of not only just emotional stability, but you need to start thinking about physical stability too because in the midst of being overwhelmed and depression and divorce. I mean, listen, now is not the time to slowly die on your couch eating buckets of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I'm not saying have a few moments of that, but you don't want to live there, right? And so what do we need to do physically to make sure that we're stable, that we're eating healthy or exercising, whatever it is? And I would say, even more importantly, where's your spiritual stability? It might be just for you worship and listening to worship music, or maybe it's for you getting involved in a communitas group and, or maybe reading different books. It could be your prayer life. It could be a retreat, time of fasting or solitude and silence. All those things could be these are the things that bring about spiritual stability in the midst of what feels like chaos. Number three, if you have children, move in the best interest of your children. Number three, move in the best interest of your children. Because in the midst of divorce, you're going to tend to gravitate towards selfishness. And that's the name of criticism. That's just the way it is. But if you've got kids, you can't. And you have to do what's in the best interest of your children. And so that means things like this. Establish quickly routines and rituals. And those are not the same thing. They're different. Routines have predictability as their goal. Rituals have connection as their goal. And kids in the midst of divorce need both. Because when their parents are in the midst of a divorce, which the kid doesn't want and had no part of, their world is now unstable, it feels unsafe, and everything that they knew as normal and predictable and certain has just unraveled, and they need you as their parent to help bring about predictability again. And even as small as things as having a consistent bedtime at night, like we go to bed at night, every night at 8, or whatever it is in, in your household, that brings predictability, which your kid is craving at this moment when everything else feels so uncertain. Right? So you might be a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of a person, and that's great for you, but at this moment, you're going to have to discipline yourself too because of the sake of my kids, they need discipline, and they need consistency and predictability. That's why we're doing this. And then you need to establish rituals. Maybe every Saturday morning, you take the kids to Farmer's Market, and that just becomes your time of connection where you get to talk together and share and how was your week. Or maybe every Tuesday night, you go to Dairy Queen together. I don't care what it is, but your kid needs routine, and it needs ritual for both predictability and connection. You also need to protect your children emotionally. Now, let me give you this list quickly, but here are some ways to protect your kids emotionally. Number one, don't ever criticize your ex-spouse in front of them. It's, it's, I mean, especially when everything in you wants to, and it even seems justified. Number two, don't use your kids as messengers. Number three, don't use them as spies. 
Well, who was there? Who was he talking to? How long did she stay? I mean, don't use them as spies. Don't restrict access to the other parent unless justifiable and sanctioned by a court. Five, don't make too many changes too quickly. Their, their world is already going through chaos and unpredictability. Don't make too many changes quickly. Don't force your kids to choose between you and your ex. Don't make promises you can't keep. Their world is already vulnerable enough. And sometimes when you're vying for the affection and heart of your kid, even subconsciously versus your ex-spouse, and I'm going to take you here and I'm going to promise. I mean, don't make promises you can't keep. They're already feeling very vulnerable in the fact that everything they thought was certain is no longer certain. Don't introduce them to a new relationship. Avoid the loss of structure and don't use your kids as confidants. Go find a best friend, go find a counselor, but you don't need to entrust to them your issues. Your children in this time are going to go through one or more of the following of anxiety or anger or depression, low self-esteem, guilt, and even dreams that the two of you will get back together again. It's okay for you to affirm your love for them and communicate the truth and reality, but that's not going to happen. And then in the end, if it doesn't feel like they're, they're stuck and they can't get beyond those things, don't hesitate to get them some professional help. And if you need a recommendation, I'll be more than happy to give you one. Number four, face your anger, depression, and loneliness. Now, I could spend two months on this, and I'm going to spend like 30 seconds. So face your anger, maybe a little more than 30 seconds. Face your anger, depression, and loneliness. Now, there are unhealthy ways to deal with these things. One is suppression. And I see especially guys do that where they, they stuff it down. They go, no, I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm all good. In fact, I didn't want to be married. I mean, that, that, that's not helpful. Another is to be openly aggressive, like slashing your ex's tires or blasting them on Facebook. Another is to be passive-aggressive in your response, which is things like maybe withholding the child support payment another week or two just to make things difficult, or posting that picture of you having the time of your life because you know your ex is seeing it. See, this dealing with your anger and your loneliness, and those sorts of, it will not be a one-time event. It will most likely be a process of facing anger and depression and loneliness, and it will require a lot of prayer, talking to God about it, Maybe even a trusted friend or a counselor might be writing out your thoughts. And it's a time of introspection, which isn't easy for everybody to figure out, now why do I respond the way I do and what are the triggers that cause it? And this can be very complicated, especially if you have kids, because if you've got to keep dealing with your ex over the kids, it can very quickly send you back into that cycle of anger and depression. So here's what I'd suggest. Learn strategic responses. And what I mean by that is you need to just think through what's going to happen, what's the situation, and what's the, the healthiest and best way to respond. So if you know at Christmas time the kids are going to be here, then you need to just imagine that means then I'll probably not be doing well on this day at this time, and because of that, I'm going to do this. And so how you think through all those sorts of issues and what's about, does that make sense what I'm talking about? Now, you'll need to give yourself grace because people walking through divorce get blindsided all the time. Like they didn't see it coming. They're just driving in the car, and all of a sudden a song comes on, and boom. They get sent to a place that just feels so weighty. Or they're just at the movie with their friends and there's something in the movie that triggers something that just sends them to a bed. You need to give yourself grace. Those moments come. You'll, you'll, it's okay to depend on God in the midst of that and, and walk through it. Give yourself grace. But I think we can, we can learn to live single. And by that, I mean truly for you to find your own separate whole unique identity for you to reclaim things that maybe you gave up because you were married and when I was married I couldn't do this but I really love this and you get to reclaim all of that again and, and so how do you come to that place where you're, you're whole again and you're content to be alone but not lonely those are two different things being alone and being lonelier one is a, a spatial state the other is a state of being or a state of mind and we can learn how to be content in being alone and that not being that we're lonely and also say in that, uh, in the loneliness, don't run to another romantic relationship real quickly. 
And if in the end, sometimes serving other people will help us in dealing with anger and loneliness and depression. Number five, proceed with new relationships slowly. Proceed with new relationships slowly. You know, the remarriage statistics aren't very good, right? I mean, just even in your first marriage, it's 50%. Your second marriage is 67%. The third marriage is 73%. And the reason why often is because the second and third marriages are rebound relationships. I would just say those who do not learn the lessons of the past are probably doomed to repeat them. If you cannot recognize your contribution to the disillusion of your marriage, then you probably aren't ready for a new one. And I'm not saying that it's all your fault. I mean, I'm just saying... Really, if you can't recognize, oh, you know, actually this is my part in what I did, if you can't come to that place, it will probably be difficult to move forward in a new one. Let me give you a few things in terms of when you might be ready for a new relationship. I mean, besides when your divorce is final. Number one, living more in the present than the past. When you find out really my thinking, my time, I mean, it really is in the present, and it's not as much anymore as it was in the past. Number two, you have fewer periods of depression. Number three, and this is important, you're not looking for nurture or to be rescued. You, you, don't, you don't need anyone in your life to nurture you or to rescue you from your situation. You are healthy and whole. Number four, when you've learned to live alone and not be lonely. Number five, you've got a problem-solving attitude. When you've identified personal weaknesses. When you can even be thankful for the hard times, which is hard to get to, but you can even say, actually, I did learn a lot in this and through this, and God is teaching me some things. And then finally, when you're willing to be accountable to other people, which can be a very sensitive thing. Let me say this about sex. If I talk about sex for just a second, um, there'll be a greater dependence you'll need on God post-divorce, but he can't get you through it. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I think sometimes we, think, we seem to think that when you're post-divorce, those ses- sexual ethics that Jesus teaches don't really apply to us. They're like for teenagers, but not really for... No, I mean, they're, really, they're still for us. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but God can get us through it as we depend on him. And I'd say, don't, don't listen to that one friend that keeps trying to tell you that, well, you just need to hook up with somebody else and you'll feel a lot better. Don't, she's stupid. Don't listen to her. And then finally, this last one will be done. Move towards forgiving your ex. Move towards forgiving your ex. And this is a big one. In fact, I put it last because for most people, this is the last frontier, so to speak. But it is doable. And it is possible. And we want to move in this direction. This is what, let me tell you what Jesus said. It's a hard saying, but Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, no, Jesus didn't say, except for your ex-spouse, he really deserves it. No, I mean, he's, I mean we need to move to that place where, where we feel, and listen, we're going we're gonna to forgive not for your ex's sake. Really, your spouse might not even deserve it. He, he might not even be asking for it. Really, you might not have ever heard a single apology or uh, you know, an admission about anything. You're not going to forgive to excuse what they did or even a promise that you're going to forget, which, by the way, isn't in the Bible, that whole forgetting and forgiving thing. That, that's nowhere in there. You're going to forgive because the only other option you have is bitterness. And if you choose that, it will consume you and poison everything else in your life, including any other relationship, and it will eventually sabotage you from the abundant life in Jesus. But when we forgive, it's an act of the will. It's not a feeling. You will not, I feel like forgiving my ex. You'll probably never get to that place. It will be an act of the will where you say, I'm choosing to forgive my ex. And you might mean it for five minutes. (laughs) And those memories come back. And then five minutes later, you might need to forgive again. 
and you'll need to forgive when you go to sleep. And then when you wake up in the morning, you'll need to forgive again. That's why it's not a one-time event. It is a process. But here's what's going to happen. After a while, you'll see that you went a couple days before you had to forgive again. And then maybe a week. And then a month. And you'll come to the place where it'll be like six months. You'll go, oh, my goodness, I think I really have forgiven my ex. Like, like I, I don't wish death upon them anymore. Like, I, I'm even okay if good things happen in life. And I, I've moved on. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying by the grace of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you can get there. And that will be for us the final frontier. How do we forgive our ex? I appreciate your patience. I know this is a lot. I mean, this is a heavy topic, and I'm throwing out a lot of things here. But I really do believe that even in the midst of life of the 50%, even in this, God's abundant life for you is not done, and it's not over. And we can claim it in the name of Jesus and move forward in a path that's healthy, right, and good. So let's just pray and ask God to bless us with that. Father, we come to you, and we're grateful that you are a God who, who not only establishes covenants but keeps them with us even when we're totally unfaithful. And in the midst of this, Father, we have covenants that we mess up all the time and that we negatively affect by our sins and our actions. And, Father, sometimes even to the point where they can't be put back together again. And so we lift all that up to you and ask for grace and for mercy and for forgiveness and really, God, just even for wisdom to know how to move forward. So I pray for those here this, this morning who just, they're just very acutely aware right now of the sensitivity and pain of those things in their life. Would you bring healing and peace? May the abundant life that Jesus offers be made just made very apparent this morning we ask in Jesus name amen